0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the continuing battle over the Stanley Park bike lane. Last night, the new Vancouver Park Board voted to shut down the Stanley Park bike lane restore the park to full vehicle access got phil rankin standing by to discuss this have a listen to this here first cyclists not happy with this move by the park board Uh, they say there was lots of support to keep the bike lane going they are going to keep fighting to save it here's a cycling advocate lucy maloney have a listen
1: Upwards of 350 uh, emails have been received by the Park Board um, in in, uh, opposition of this motion, with with, uh, opposition emails outnumbering um, supportive emails 20 to 1.
0: Okay. So she says there was more support to keep the bike lane in place. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Phil Rankin. Phil's a Vancouver lawyer. He has represented uh, people with disabilities who felt the bike lane was unfair for their enjoyment and access to Stanley Park. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Phil, thanks for coming on today.
2: Thank you for having me. Well, you, you I, bet. Was, I was pleased with uh, last night's vote. It was, I now will remain hopeful that the staff will undermine them. As far as this Maloney lady, this group uh, that hub that supports bicycling in Vancouver, we're not against bicycling, but they receive a huge amount of public money, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the city, and I think well over a million in their charity. And they organize this little phone in at the last minute. And They represent, you know, uh, what I find amazing is how does a charitable organization get itself involved in public in, uh, particularly partisan events they even a, a selected a group who should be voted for on this election and they certainly weren't abc so they, they are no. basically a bicycle league lobby that i'm paying for you're paying for and i don't see why we should be giving them any airtime as far as the uh, as the park board we're not they're they took something away from us the elderly and the disabled we we didn't take anything from them they have exactly what they had before this stupid decision was made, and the decision was made by the staff, it was made by mm. Malcolm Bromley on April the eighth, twenty twenty, and the staff have run with it. The last board never led anything and never questioned anything, and they wasted tens of millions of dollars in resources. That's why Kisselino Beach never opened up this summer. That's why the mm. train doesn't go. That's why there was no Christmas train. That's why the park is in a shambles. That's why the Homeless were allowed to remain in parks, even though where the court said that they had to remove them, but they wouldn't remove them, not unless somebody built them housing, which in other words, it was an impossible task. We'll do it, but only if you build adequate housing for them, which is unlikely to find 10,000 adequate housings for people who are drug addicted with mental illness and are homeless, because it's not going to happen. Okay, Phil. We've been held hostage by these people for three years.
0: Okay, let's dig down a little bit into the issue around the bike lane itself and your lawsuit you represented. You talked about the elderly, people with disabilities and their inability. They, don't, they can't ride a bike into the park. So can you talk a little bit about that, like how this bike lane was unfair to them?
2: Well, the bike lane was removed. Well, let's look, let look at, the, at the rationale. The rationale was COVID, which is ridiculous. In my car, I don't present any threat to anyone. Then about three months, two and a half months later, the next last group of green copes, Decided, no, oh, it's for climate change. There was no evidence whatsoever. There was even one saving of one thimble of carbon dioxide. Nothing. It's, but they they've marched on on it, and now they've and now they have asserted that the changes they've made, because adding some more handicapped paces at places and opening up a few cutouts for the horses, that that solves the problem. No, it doesn't solve the problem. It means that basically there's about a third of the park that disabled and elder people can't get to. It also means that on crowded days in the summertime when the bicycle lane is is somewhat in use and the other lane is all we've got, that you can't get a picnic and and a large group of people in there to do your graduation ceremonies and your weddings and funerals and every other thing that people do in large numbers with families which require hampers and loading your stuff into the car and getting yourself into the park so people have stopped going to the park. It's become a private park for the elitist bicyclists they don't call themselves elitists because they're ideologues who believe that somehow they're saving humanity well they all they've done really is restrict the park to a large demographic in the city the elderly seniors, people for whatever reasons and families that need to drive and they've right. also lost tens of millions of dollars in revenue. this park is supposed to our park's supposed to raise forty percent of its revenue. By various concessions and rentals and all the things that go with it, not to say what they did to the leaseholders there at the Ferguson Point and the tea house Restaurant, where they basically bankrupted these people. Okay.
0: In a speaking of race, that,
2: bath race relations.
0: Speaking of that, Phil, with the impact on businesses that operate. In the park. I mean, this has been a frequent talking point on, on the bike lane. Let me play another clip here from Lucy Maloney, who's on on the other side of this. And here she is responding to this argument that, look, you're hurting small businesses in the park. Listen to what she says here. Let me get your thoughts.
1: It's pretty odd that um, this bike lane is magically causing problems for the businesses in the park when all the other businesses in, in Vancouver that aren't necessarily even anywhere near a bike lane are suffering just as much. People are trying to avoid discretionary spending, and that could also be a factor.
0: Okay, what do you say to that argument that there's nothing it's to do with the
2: bike lane? your argument is ludicrous because, in fact, well, there, of course there's going to be some restraint. But it's on the theory, these are two small park, uh, restaurants that have been in the park forever, used for special occasions, Mother Days, uh, weddings, uh, Christmas parties, birthday parties, and that kind of thing. And obviously, uh, being in the park, geographically relying on the, on the cars being able to get you, makes a big difference. Uh, it, that's why they all, some of these restaurants were able to have, get rid of parking on the streets to enhance some of their business. That's it's true, but it's, not, it's a false analogy. To get into oh. Stanley Park to any of these restaurants, you have to use a car. To get onto Commercial Drive, I can walk down to Commercial Drive, and I can sit outside in front of one of these heated, plastic surrounded places, and and they and they lose a little bit of traffic business, but it's in walking distance. The so Stanley Park is not in walking distance unless you're an athlete who likes to do a, a 10k run, and unfortunately, <laughs> I uh, I dagged to do that. It was called the 1979. <laughs> well, I'm I'm 73 years old. At 79, I used to do a 10K run with the Vancouver Sun. I don't do that anymore because I am lame, and my wife is, has even more problems. And my clients are completely mobile because they've got MS. One's a dental amputee. Another one's had a heart transplant and a heart operation. One is very elderly. This is these are just these are just elitist people spitting on on the people who actually pay for this park. And you have to also remember this is not a park for the west end this is a park for all of canada and it draws people from the whole lower mainland to it not just from people from across the street
0: hey phil last question for you you touched on some of the clients you represent people with disabilities who felt that their access to the park was restricted by the by the bike lane what happens to your your suit now your kate your legal case is that going away now that the bike the bike lane the bike lane is being shut down
2: we offered the last board a settlement uh, that they, they were kept completely in the dark about this lawsuit. Uh, we've had 30 days of testimony. We're now moving into written argument. This is a very expensive lawsuit for the city. This is, this is the cost of, of, of doing something for the train and, or virtually anything, anything else that you're complaining about. Uh, uh, they don't want to settle, so it looks like we're going to the bitter end. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know if this is a good thing, but it's certainly not a good thing for the city. And it's certainly a, a, a bad uh, omen to recognize that politics of change in Vancouver, the city has been taken back from completely from the group that basically decided that since there were bad things happening, homelessness, we had to destroy and make the city unworkable. So people will do something about it. That kind okay. of, 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 of gun to your head politics, it just doesn't work anymore.
0: Bill Rankin, thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you. Let's talk about the surge in flu cases in British Columbia. Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday calling this a dramatic increase in influenza. She said it's coming on quicker than expected. Children, especially young children, have less natural immunity. They are being disproportionately hit. She talked about a lot of kids getting sick yesterday. Absenteeism on the rise at BC Public Schools. She also talked about the potential for severe cases of the flu. Heartbreakingly, a Richmond family uh, reporting that even their six-year-old daughter died over the weekend at complications from the flu. Uh, How tragic is that? Have a listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry here talking about the severe illness that kids can get. Have a listen.
3: Much more than, than COVID, influenza can cause more severe illness in children, especially young children.
0: Okay, she also talked about complications from the flu.
3: They're starting to see and hear more about severe cases of influenza, and in some cases complications from influenza.
0: Okay, lots of pressure on our hospitals. BC Children's Hospital, of course, taking the brunt of it. The long waits in the emergency department there. Other hospitals, though, also feeling the strain. Let's check in with Dr. Kevin McLeod now, internal medicine specialist, Lionsgate Hospital. It's always great to have him
1: on. Kevin, thank you very much for coming on today. Mike, I'm happy to be here. If I'm short of breath, it's because I'm just doing random loops around Stanley Park in the bike lane before it's gone.
0: Oh, good. (laughs) Okay. All right. You you like the bike lane
1: though then, huh? No, no. I mean, oh, honestly, okay. it, I won't get into the debate. I <laughs> you gotta let older people get into the park, right? I mean, there it's you accessible go. to everybody. So
0: Yeah, I agree with you on that. Okay, let's talk about the, the surge in flu cases that we're seeing in the province right now. What are you seeing on the front lines there? What are you seeing at Lionsgate and elsewhere?
1: We were a little bit luckier at Lionsgate. It's been incredibly busy. Um you know, the Friday night when I was there was probably the busiest night I've seen in in my many years of doing this. I, I'm not at Children's, I can't make a big comment about that. But, you know, I mean, I, from what I hear from colleagues, it's incredibly busy there. There there are just so many different respiratory illnesses going around right now, right? It's It's not contrary to what people may think, all COVID. It's not. In fact, COVID is probably the more minor thing right now. But there's a ton of influenza. There's a a ton of RSV. And it's it's actually quite interesting. You know, when somebody comes in and they're they're moderately sick or quite sick, we'll often send a, a panel of virus swabs off to see what's going on. And, you know, more and more people I see, their panel's negative but there's all these things we don't test for that that are circulating in the community right now as well so you know there's there's probably half a dozen if not more viruses going around and and you'll hear from friends and family that say you know i got really sick and then i was getting better and then i got sick again so you know some people are getting more than one virus which which really knocks them down as well
0: what kind of pressure is this putting on our on our hospital system and our, and our health care workers right now
1: I mean, it's huge pressure, right? Because there's always been pressure for beds. We, we typically run close to 100% capacity. And, you know, there there are just staffing challenges. And and um, when you don't have enough staff, well, then even if there's a physical bed, you don't have somebody to look after the patient in that bed. So it, it becomes a huge, huge challenge. And, and then we move into hallway medicine, right? And And I absolutely hate it when I've got patients and and families that are stuck in a hallway receiving care in that way—I mean, it's—it's it's just terrible. Um, but, but unfortunately, that's the reality as it gets busier and busier. And you know, I saw some stats the other day. You—you you look at our population; it's aging, right? The population's growing. The population's getting older. You know, this is this is going to be a reality going forward. And we we probably do need a very good big discussion. Not just about throwing more money at the the problem, but you know, wh- wh- what do we need as far as hospital beds and resources for the next ten, twenty years, so that we're not constantly scrambling all the time? I mean, your listeners have got to get sick and tired of oh, more pressure on healthcare, more pressure on healthcare. Like, wh- wh- where's the long term vision? <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Would you would you say that it's more of a case of not necessarily a lack of space or physical resources but a lack of of human resources a lack of staff the reason i ask is we recently spoke to a young family in victoria their daughter's surgery was scheduled heart surgery scheduled at bc children's hospital cancelled at the last minute and the explanation they got was there was a bed available but there was just no staff in the icu for recovery after this surgery so the bed's there but the staff's not there is that what you're seeing too
1: yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, you you do sometimes run out of out of beds and stretchers, but it's it's predominantly a staffing challenge. There's it, just there's a lot of people that have left the healthcare system. And part of that was because of the pandemic. A lot of it's burnout. People've gone and, and taken jobs elsewhere. You know, it, it's a really tough job for allied health health and, and nurses. I mean, I, I don't know how they do it. Um, absolutely brutal you're getting yelled at sworn at you feel like you're not delivering the best possible care because you've got that patient in the hallway there's delays you know it's it's a really tough job so people are leaving to do other things and and it's a tough spot for government because it's not it's not something that money fixes right you, you know even if people were paid more it doesn't you know maybe it maybe makes the job a little bit more palatable but it doesn't really fix the problem you, you still have people who are going to to burn out and and um not want to be in the system
0: speaking of dr kevin McLeod, we're talking about the surge in flu and other respiratory illnesses in our hospitals right now when we hear about some of the delays we got long waits in emergency rooms we got lengthening wait lists for surgery what kind of impact does that have on on patients when they when they have to wait
1: and their their treatment is delayed well, there's a few reasons for that, right? Like the, the girl you talked about, if a heart surgery is delayed, you know, people get worse. Like if I have somebody who's waiting for bypass and it's delayed, you know, there's complications that ensue from that, right? If somebody's cancer surgery is delayed, there's a higher likelihood it spreads. The the bigger thing I'm seeing is just delayed to actually coming to an initial diagnosis. If If somebody can't access... The system, because they don't have a family doctor, there's not a walk-in clinic around. You know, then their diagnosis is delayed. You look at a community like Kamloops. You know, it's almost half of the people in Kamloops don't have a family doctor. Well, what, what happens if you've got some pain in your belly and, you know, oh, I'm going to put it off. I don't know. I can't get to a clinic. There's nowhere to go. And you put that off and off, and wow, now that thing that turned out to be a cancer spreads somewhere else, and the outcome's worse. Right? I, I have. So many examples where I've seen patients where they they weren't able to access, you know, something as simple as a blood thinner, um, you know, so somebody who's very high risk of stroke because they have an irregular heart rhythm and their family doctor's gone and they, they just couldn't get their blood thinner renewed. And, you know, th- they may not think it's a big deal, but when they land in the emergency department and they've had a stroke, it's a really big deal. And and I've got countless examples of that where that person is going to have a terrible outcome, right? They're going to go to long-term care. Um, It's a huge amount of resource that's utilized. Um, If you just look at it from an economic point of view, which, you know, you also have to think about the poor person and what's happened to them as well, but you're spending hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars because somebody couldn't get a renewal of a $25 medication. You know, so those sorts of things just drive me bananas. Um yeah, but unfortunately yeah. that's not going to get better quickly, Mike, because government's done some good things with trying to get more family doctors and and um, I saw the the you know the docs of BC have voted to ratify their their agreement and by ninety four percent or something like that this morning. You know, so it it there's some positive things that are happening, but a lot of those changes are you know, 7, 10 years kind of away before we really see the results of it. So it's in the intermediate term, we still have a, a lot of struggles.
0: Yeah, how about in the shorter or immediate term? What can you say about the the call by the province yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry, for an, an all-out blitz here to get more people the flu shot into their arms, including young kids? As so she mentioned yesterday, only 20% of children under the age of 5 have been vaccinated, even though they're eligible to be vaccinated, kids under five, but only 20% have been. So she is encouraging people, get your kids vaccinated. What would you say about the the importance of getting vaccinated, you know, get your kids vaccinated, or if you're in a high risk group as well?
1: Um, it's absolutely important. I, I think what's happened, if we're really honest about it, there's been so much of a push for COVID vaccination and just a lot of controversy. And And I think people are just, Sick and tired of hearing about vaccination, right? Yeah. Um, but it is actually really important here. So you look at influenza. I mean, that's what's actually impacting and affecting kids the most and probably impacting our our hospitals a lot more than COVID is right now. Um, you know, the influenza vaccine, it is not perfect. It does not make your risk of getting influenza zero, but it substantially reduces your risk of hospitalization and getting really sick. So on average, you know, it drops your risk by about 50% of getting really sick. You think, well, that's not great. But, you know, if, if that prevents a whole bunch of people from landing in a hospital or prevents some kids from dying or ending up on a ventilator, it makes sense, right? Um You know, so I I think influenza vaccination is is something that we all should be doing. Um, And I know there's fatigue from vaccinations, but, you know, just get it done because it it will reduce risk and it does help the community for sure. It's a bit more than just that, though, because... Vaccination is going to reduce risk, but then there's other things, right? And you'll you'll see people that say, "Well, masks are going to solve the world and solve the healthcare crisis." They're not. They do reduce risk a little bit. So, you know, in high risk settings, it's not unreasonable that you use a mask if you're an asthmatic or have advanced lung disease or something else. Absolutely, it makes sense you should do that. The other thing is a bit different than just COVID, right? Remember in the early days of COVID, we were You know, wiping down our lettuce from the grocery store and (laughs) things that now we look back and go, well, that was kind of crazy. Let's all just not talk about it. Um, But, you know, with influenza, it's a droplet thing. It does land on surfaces. It does sit on your keyboard and the door handle and other things. So, you know, that old adage of wash your hands um, and wipe down surfaces you know, it's, it's not COVID that we're dealing with predominantly now. And it's, it's really important that people go back to doing that, right? I mean, wash your hands if you've been out in the grocery store or something else because it, um, that can reduce your risk of, of picking up it too.
0: Thanks for everything that you and your colleagues are doing here on the front lines of the healthcare system. And I appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Mike, anytime. Talk about last week's ch- snowstorm the snow snowmageddon that we saw on the roads of metro vancouver all the accidents the marathon commutes for people stuck in the snow last week we got more snow on the way here now and check this out now the mayor of delta george harvey calling on the province here to do a better job when it comes to snow and ice removal he says the province should review its contract with its snow removal provider. He also thinks there needs to be a better warning system to the public in the event of severe weather events and highway closures. I got Dan Dickey standing by to talk about this. Have a listen to George Harvey here, the mayor of Delta, speaking to Jazz Johal here. The province has to be a leader here and ensure that the main corridors, all the bridges, the hot provincial highways, uh, they can
2: handle that. And I don't think they can right now. Mm-hmm. It's been shown that they can't.
0: Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dan Dickey. Dan is a truck driver, BC Trucker One on Twitter. He is an advocate for safer roads. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, Dan, you are a guy who drives professionally for a living. So let's talk about the event we saw in Metro Vancouver last week, the, uh, the terrible snowstorm and all the people getting stuck in the snow. Do you have sympathy for people who are stuck? I mean, do you think a lot of people were uh, driving with wrong tires on? How did you view it?
3: Well, there's lots of people driving around with wrong tires. There's lots of people that just have zero experience in the snow and get caught out in it when they probably shouldn't be. Um, there's a lot of people that are out there that are ill-prepared for for a weather event such as that. Like, people are used to their 20-minute or half-hour or 45-minute commute. People are used to, you know, in the commercial transportation, are used to getting in their truck and doing their run and putting in their 8- to 10-hour day and going home. And it just, some days that just does not happen.
0: (laughs) Do you think sometimes drivers in the Lower Mainland... You know, they'll get one day of ice or snow, and they're freaking out. They're losing it. And then guys like you who drive in the, the north or interior of the province see this kind of stuff every day. Like, do you think drivers in other parts of the province kind of shake their heads when they look at lower mainland drivers or complaining?
3: Uh, they do. like, Yes. I mean, the, the the road maintenance down there I don't think is any better or any worse or any different than anywhere else in the province. Um I mean, the lower mainland has considerably warmer temperatures, so when the snow does get compact, it's extremely slippery, and it, it is a challenging driving conditions for even people that are, that are well-prepared and experienced in it. It's, it's, it's a very different type of um, driving conditions than even are in most other areas of the province.
0: Okay, we, we had a, a debate earlier on the show, Dan. Is the snow... On the coast, different from the snow in the north and the interior. So the argument here is that look, okay, you know you can shake your head and, at, at Metro Vancouver drivers and say they're bad drivers, but the snow is wet and heavy compared to the interior where the snow is like drier, easier to drive in. Are you buying that? I was like, is that legit? Yeah,
3: that's a legitimate, that's a legitimate observation. Like it's okay. I mean, you put a you put an ice cube on the counter and you try and pick it up after five minutes, and it's extremely slippery. When you grab the ice cube out of the out of the freezer, it'll stick to your fingers, right? I mean, yeah. there's you know, as soon as you get a layer of of warmer or moisture on top of the ice and snow, it it turns into. I mean, there's there's no control. I mean, we've all seen the videos of the lower mainland. You know, in different areas where people are just sliding around and uncontrollably, and just slamming into each other, right? It's, yeah. it's it's absolutely a different a different traffic nightmare down there than it is in other areas of the province.
0: Okay, let's play another clip here from George Harvey, here the mayor of Delta, who is critical of the snow and ice response in the Lower Mainland and. He thinks the province should review the contract with its snow removal provider. I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Dan. So let's listen to George Harvey here talking about this main road contractor here. Have a listen. The province has a responsibility for that main road contract. We don't step up just for the ever snowfall. We step
2: up for an emergency. And I want to know if that main road contract has the ability for them to step up to an emergency like we just faced.
0: Okay. Main Road is the company that provides some of the snow removal services. Dan, what do you think? I mean, you're a guy who drives around the province. Do you think that overall, let's say in, in Metro Vancouver, but beyond and elsewhere in BC, is snow and ice removal definitely a problem? Do you think we're, we're up to the challenge or do you think it's adequate?
3: Uh well, I mean, I drive on it, so I'm never going to say that it's adequate. It could always, there's, there could always <laughs> be more done, but I mean, a lot of it is I mean, just the the availability of personnel. I mean, every business, every every employer in the in Canada right now is struggling to find employees. So even if there was an unlimited amount of equipment and resources no in, in order to, to deal with it, I don't know that there's there's the personnel that's available to actually operate the equipment, you know, in the times that it's necessary. Yeah.
0: How do they deal with in your experience, we had a caller earlier saying that they should use more sand on the roads instead of brine or salt. Do you have any thoughts so my, on that?
3: Oh, I do. My experience with the brining is is it, is it dilutes, dilutes itself, either by melting the snow and the ice and then refreezes. So, I mean, I sent you a video earlier in the week there up north here where they'd used a brining solution and then had, you know, went back over top of it and had to use sand on top of it because it just, it, once the snow's compact on the road, it, it melts and then refreezes and you get three quarters of an inch, half an inch of ice on top of the road surface. And it's, it's extremely treacherous to drive on. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a hundred different things they can do to, to make the roads better. I mean, last night, Coming across uh, Highway 16, I mean, it was snowing, and you know there was plows out all over the place, and you know a lot of the uh, transports that were coming at me or other transports around just didn't have any clue. You know, we had a one guy. You know, I was in between two snow plows. You know, and the snow plows were trying to let me get around them, and uh, a guy coming towards us just stopped in the middle of the highway with his with his high beams on. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, now what do we do, right? So I mean. There's there's a lot of different things that can be done, you know, you know, not the least of which obviously is, is snow removal. But I mean, during a snow event, I mean, there's only so much they can do. They can do, you know, there's only, I mean, you can't have a a snow plow on every road all day long, just going back and forth, doing you know half a kilometer, a kilometer and a half east. I mean, there's there's only so much resources that they can allocate towards that, right?
0: Okay, would you say that? I mean, you're a guy, you're not afraid to call out other truck drivers that you think could be doing a better job, too, not necessarily the pampered drivers in Metro Vancouver. Like We had a caller earlier who said, you know, when we saw that snowmageddon in Metro last week, there were lots of pictures on the news, not only of people driving hatchbacks and bald tires getting in trouble, but, you know, tractor trailers, trucks having a tough time getting up the road because of the snow. And is the reason that they're not chained up? Like, do you think that some truckers, uh, you know, don't chain up their tires when they should?
3: Um, it's really in most cases, it's like tire chains are are unnecessary. Down the the problem I find is the the minimum requirements for for tires on commercial trucks in British Columbia is 5.30 seconds of an inch. Well, a brand new truck tire is 28 to 32, 30 seconds of an inch. So at 5.30 seconds of an inch, they're at about 20% or less of their usable service life, you know, and it's, I mean, that would alleviate a large portion of the problems just there. If there was an increased level of requirement just for tires on trucks, but I mean, snow, or chains on ice, Really do nothing, right? Like it's, hmm. it, it's, you know, yeah. I don't. Okay, okay. I don't here's even though that most trucks in the Lower Mainland have tire chains on. I know some companies do, but I don't know that all of them do, right?